So I'm going to be, this is Sue again, uh, introducing the next couple of speakers, but did just want to echo Rafi's thanks for our two uh, first speakers, both terrific presentations. And it's now my great pleasure to introduce Joe Aaron, who is professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina um, uh, Center for AIDS Research. He's their clinical core director. And he's also the principal investigator of the ACTG research unit. He's been part of the AIDS clinical trial group since 1993 and had multiple leadership positions since that time. He works with international sites in Malawi and in Vietnam. He has over 400 publications and has been uh, active in the area of drug development and led or participated in original studies of many antiretroviral therapies. In fact, sometimes, uh, you know, you, you, I'm surprised when I see a new drug presented or published and Joe's name is not there as first or last author. He's incredibly hardworking and productive. And also on a personal note, I can say a delight to work with. He's very um, open-minded and inclusive, and I've just enjoyed my interactions with him over the years. I'm very much looking forward to his presentation on resistance in long-acting therapy for prevention and treatment, uncommon outcome, or Achilles heel. So, Joe, I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, great, Sue. That was such a generous introduction. Um, uh, it's it's always been a tremendous pleasure working with you. So so everybody buckle up. Um, th there's been a lot of uh, great stuff, but by Colleen and Adia. So I can I can really hit the high points here, and you can you can all see the slides. Um, so off I go. I hope. Please. There we go. Okay. These are my financial disclosures. These are our objectives um, of, of the um, uh, actual meeting. Um, so I'm going to talk first about confirmed virologic failure and resistance on treatment. So this is long-acting CAB and rilpivirine. Um, so I think the first thing uh, about understanding resistance, uh, failure and resistance, is to remember who enrolled in these studies. And Adia went over this, but I'm going to go because it's so important. So these are people that were on uninterrupted first um, or second oral therapy. Second mean they just changed therapies but stayed suppressed. There was no history of virologic failure, right? There could be no history of virologic failure, known, no known resistance mutations except a transmitted K103N. That's the only thing. They had to have a low RNA, of course, and then two additional RNA, uh, RNAs less than 50 in the previous year, the exception of that. So that, of course, was Flair that Adia talked about, who were treatment-naive people, uh, people uh, living with HIV treatment-naive who were suppressed on oral therapy for 20 weeks. So, so keep that in your mind. So Adia talked briefly about this study. This is published just a little bit ago by Chloe Orkin and a really large group of uh, people very experienced in um, uh, resistance, uh, looking at all the... Um, uh, patients who enrolled in FLAIR, ATLAS, and ATLAS 2M that Adia's gone through. And, and she mentioned overall that 23 out of 1,651 patients 
had confirmed virologic failure. That's 1.4%. And, and that's about 0.5% per 100 person years or, or half a percent per year. Um, the median time to failure was um, uh, about half a year, 25 weeks. And the key point is when you have confirmed virologic failure, at least as it was defined in the studies, so two values over 200, you were very like the person was very likely to develop resistance. Most had resistance to both ropivirine and integrase, and only um, three out of the 20 where they had genotyping had new mutations. So the numbers are small. I think Rafi's already said this, the numbers are small, but if you have confirmed virologic failure, uh, uh, then it's very likely that you'll get resistance. Adias showed this slide, and I just wanna point out that once you get past this, here's, here's a year on the slide, right? Um, once you get past a year, failure is uncommon, but it still happens. It's uncommon but it, it still happens. So what are the predictors? And this is really what um, Chloe Orkin and the group really looked at. So what are the predictors? It was a very sophisticated model. It took me almost two hours to read the paper, but I'm gonna give you the bottom line. There are three things that showed up. One is if you had Wilpivirine rams uh, at, at baseline, you had a very high likelihood of resistance. And you might say, well, but these people shouldn't have failed. How do they know they had ropivirine rams? They looked at either in flare, they could look at the baseline um, uh, genotype uh, because those were treatment naive people. But for most people, they, they looked at the uh, DNA archive. Um, if you had this crazy, um, unusual, at least in the US, subtype A1A6, um, then um, that also had an increased risk. And people with a BMI above 30 were at a slight elevation of risk. So, so look at the, the um, <clears throat> relative risk was quite small, 1.09. And on the right, if you just look at, um, if you had no baseline resistance factors, four out of a thousand or four, out, um, so that's obviously about 0.4%. If you had only one, um, it was higher, right? It was about uh, almost the 1.4% that we that that we saw overall. And I just want to point out, if it was your only risk factor was BMI, it was one out of um, 200. So again, it's that's about 0.5%. It's almost the same as with no risk factor. And then only 31 people had a ropivirine RAM at baseline, only 31, so one out of 31. So that's how those numbers shake out. Um, so what what about in the more, most recent study, this is solar, this is solar. These were people that had to be on uninterrupted BFTAF and they could only have been treated with an integrase. So no virologic failure, were treated with an integrase, run BFTAF, um, so they no history of a non-integrase regimen. And again, you see this remarkable success that Adia talked about, but two, again, 0.4%, this is a year-long study, so 0.4%, two, did develop um, uh, confirmed virologic failure, and both had resistance mutations. Both had resistance mutations. So it's uncommon. It's not like oral therapy, which I would call rare or very rare or case report level, um, but it does 
happen. And it happens even in very well-controlled studies where people get their medication on time. So again, Adia looked at this study. This is the um, uh, opera cohort, people suppressed uh, on therapy. Most were suppressed uh, and they switched to oral, uh, they switched to uh, cabotegravir, ropivirine. So this is looking at the people who were suppressed, less than 50, and I'll just go right to the bottom line, 1%, 1%. So 16 out of almost 1,500 uh, people, almost 1,600 people, so almost exactly 1%, had um, uh, confirmed biologic failure. I wanna point out two things about this particular uh, uh, presentation. One, the median follow-up was 7.4 months. And less than 25% had one year follow-up. So very short follow-up for the majority of people. And the other thing is there were no resistance data. So no resistance data from this particular group as yet. I'm sure they have it. I'm sure they'll share it with us. Uh, and Adia also mentioned multiple studies at the EECS meeting that was in Warsaw. Uh, um, so there was a French study, again, uh, 1,100 people. They had a very strict definition of virologic failure, but they had eight virologic failures with discontinuation, and they actually had four that had resistance. And again, those four out of eight had um, resistance and resistance to both agents. And then um, Anna Marie Wenzig described five virologic failures with resistance. Again, no denominator here, so hard to interpret. Um, but these are all people that had on time injections, but curiously had lower drug concentrations than anticipated. So, so virologic, uh, um, virologic failure happens. I think of virologic failure almost synonymous with resistance emergence. And um, as um, Rafi, Adia have already said, it can happen when it, even when it's on time. And then I know there was a lot of discussion already about this cohort, this is Monica Gandhi's cohort from San Francisco. Um, and, and she had a, a percentage of her patients, about 30, um, uh, 30 almost 40% that were viremic. Uh, and most achieved virologic suppression. But I do want to point out two out of 57, two out of 57. Remember, in people who are suppressed in the uh, um, uh, uh, Vive studies, it was four out of almost a thousand. This is two out of 57. And again, they developed um, either, this person developed uh, uh, um, non-nuke resistance, and this person developed um, substantial integrase resistance. And, and T97A, that's a polymorphism. Um, it's not a precursor to resistance. That's been studied very extensively. It does cause lead to resistance to l but it did not kind of soften this person up for, for resistance. So um, treating people with viremia, the risk of resistance, I think almost by definition is, is gonna be higher. Um, so here's our case. This is a man diagnosed 20 uh, years ago, um, and you are seeing him new. You have records for the last 10 years. He's been on integrase resistance. He's been blow detectable. He's um, currently on BFTF and suppressed. He recalls that he um, was on um, a Favrin's TDF-FTC, which we lose, used all the time, but he stopped. And that was, you know, 
20 years ago when he began and he didn't take therapy for a while. And, and he believes that he has been suppressed since going back on therapy. Um, and he's not aware of any resistance testing. So what is your next step after failing to get additional old records? He really, he, he's a traveler. He, he wants oral therapy. He, he, he wants long acting therapies, asked for long acting therapy. Um, so what would you advise? Would you advise against long acting therapy? Would you start long acting therapy with a two inch needle? His BMI is 35. Would you start long acting uh, on the recommended schedule for one monthly? Um, would you get a DNA archive, look for uh, real pivoting resistance mutations, or you're not sure? So, so go ahead and vote. There's no right answer here, um, uh, but let me see what you think. Okay, what do people think? So some people advise against. Um, wow, that's really interesting. So uh, two thirds of people would get an archive resistance test. I, I think that's a very reasonable strategy. And I think if I found resistance on an archive, I would not go forward. If I didn't, I would probably go forward, but I would really go forward very cautiously and say, I know you travel a lot, but you're gonna have to come in and we're gonna have to watch you carefully. And I'm gonna get a viral load um, with, with each time you get an injection for the first six months or so. And I would still use two monthly. Um, the, fa the failure rate's a little bit higher with two monthly, but but um, again, I think given what he's asking for, that's what he wants. And 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 Adia talked about patient-centered therapy uh, several times, so I think that makes sense. Um, if this person had a, um, a BMI less than thirty, if this person had only been on BFTAF, um, his likelihood of resistance would be less than one percent. Um, over a two-year period, two to three-year period, based on the data that I've showed you, based on the data that I showed you. Um, uh, <clears throat> and, and when I say uh, resistance, when I use the word rare, I mean very rare. So, so it would be less than 1%, but not zero. That's the thing, not zero. Okay. Oh, I got to click on the slide so that it goes forward. All right. So, um, what are the risks for resistance? Um, well, there's subtype uh, uh, A1. We talked about that. Um, if someone had the A1, A6 genotype, I would, and there were oral therapy or they were doing this mainly for convenience issues, I would avoid um, cab ropivirine. Um, if they have known ropivirine mutations, if they have oral treatment options, once again, I would avoid cab ropivirine. I think this is really the highest risk of resistance. And, and I know you've had discussions about treating viremic people. Um, if someone has suspected virologic failure on an NNRTI, again, if there are no treatment options, I would again be anxious about using this. And I think an archive genotype is one way to look at this. Um, uh, if there are no documented resistance uh, mutations, Again, I would just caution uh, the uh, patient about increased risk. For me, the issue of people who are viremic, I don't think there's enough data to understand the risk of resistance. Certainly you would genotype the person prior to treatment because you have viremia, it's, it, that's a good test. Uh, and I personally agree with Paul Sachs on this. I would only use this uh, if someone 
uh, uh, couldn't succeed on oral therapy? And is that uh, a high risk of disease progression? BMI greater than 30, if that's the only risk, I would not have concerns. Um, Rafi asked me, why is A1, A6 a risk? The only thing I'm going to say is it turns out that if you have if you have person infected with A1, A6, then the virus actually, um, because it has this L74I, it actually becomes more fit when it acquires resistance mutations. On the other hand, if you have subtype B and you ha you don't have L74I, you have <clears throat> then uh, you have um, uh, the virus actually becomes less fit um, if you put L74I into uh, a subtype B. So it's all about fitness. So what do you do if there's virologic failure? Uh, if there's a long gap between injection and rebound, obviously you get resistance testing. If there's no resistance, I would be fine with an integrase plus uh, uh, a tenofovir FTC. If there's no resistance and no gap, I would be very careful, but I would start integrase plus um, uh, TAF, uh, 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 TAF FTC, but I would get a resistance test on the day I started in case there was an increase in viral load, and I would get another one four weeks later. Um, if there's NNRTI resistance and no gap, again, perhaps uh, an integrase would be appropriate there. Uh, but I think that if you're unsure about resistance or if there is resistance, I, I think that the concern there is you're, you're it's most likely that the person would be successful on a boosted PI. And I think uh, failing this regimen, it's most likely that the best regimen, if you have dual resistance, is gonna be a boosted PI, which has risk to the person over time. So what about resistance during PrEP? You've seen these data already from Colleen, a fantastic result with long acting PrEP. And I just wanna really highlight this. There were 2,244 2, men or transgender women in 083, and only 25 infections. This is with the primary. There actually is a, um, a follow-up study was just published by uh, Rafi where they actually go into the unblinded period, but there were 25 and only 10 out of 2,244 at the time this was published developed uh, integrase resistance. You've heard about these various categories. I'm not gonna talk about them uh, specifically, only to say that um, the, the ones uh, that we worry about in terms of selecting for resistance, and Colleen's talked about that, if there was no CAB administration for six months, very unlikely in the studies to develop resistance. So far, no one has in this tail phase. But it's these other uh, times, oral therapy, or if they're infected at baseline, that there is a risk of resistance. Um, here are the uh, resistance emergence that Mark Marzinski presented um, or published uh, just earlier this year. Um, and, and again, I'm going to ignore L74I. Um, uh, but what you can see is that there can be substantial resistance. And almost all these um, would be resistant to, to dalutegravir, maybe with the exception of uh, 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 N155H mutation. So, so again, when you have rebound, 
when you have infection in the presence of uh, cabotegravir, uh, there clearly is a risk of resistance. These are kind of the various types of cases. So D6, this is someone on time injections up on the upper left corner. And, and um, when, when this happens, um, you see resistance. Uh, B2, this is a, uh, an example of someone who has this very long period um, between their last injection, which is the green stripe, uh, and, and they had a high viral load when they were infected and uh, wild type virus, and, and, and they went on to uh, uh, TDF, 3TC, and efavirenz. This is someone um, who um, had a delay uh, in their um, uh, uh, injection, um, but did uh, become infected. This is at the, here's at the time of uh, the injection. Um, and again, they did uh, uh, develop a mixture, probably resistance here. And again, this is a person, unfortunately, who had a long delay, but then they restarted at the time they were positive. So again, there's no RNA here. They restarted at the time they were positive. And unfortunately, they developed a resistance mutation. So, so resistance happens, but it is uncommon. Um, now, what about women? Um, you probably know, and, and I didn't hear all of Colleen's uh, presentation because I was um, uh, getting ready to, to, to Zoom with you guys. Um, uh, but cisgender women, one thing we know is that women um, tend to have um, a greater exposure and longer duration when um, uh, given the same uh, uh, cabotegavir dose as, as men. So this is H, um, oh, HVTN, it's HPTN084, not HVTN. Um, Mike Cohen will be really upset with me on this slide. HPTN084, so cisgender women. Um, the overall result was 40 infections uh, with almost 4,000 uh, woman years. Um, and there were only, at the primary uh, result, there were only four infections. So four uh, infections on cabotegravir uh, with almost 2,000 person years. And obviously that was highly statistically significantly better um, than with, um, uh, with uh, oral TDF-FTC. Um, overall, with, with the blinded and unblinded period, there were a total of six uh, infections. And, and I think this... Whoops. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, my um, uh, one of my slides is missing, but but uh, there were no infections with on-time injections in women, and to date there haven't been any uh, presentations of cabotegravir uh, resistance um, uh, in women on uh, 084. Um, and again, here are the examples of the infections on cabotegravir. Um, this is a woman who uh, was infected at baseline uh, in uh, the B1 and B2. These were women that were infected kind of after their oral therapy. Um, this was a woman who was affected right at the start of her oral therapy. Uh, um, uh, oral therapy. And this woman um, was infected um, literally um, uh, uh, a very long time after um, and had never really gotten an injection. Um, this person 
was infected uh, after uh, oral therapy, but her um, uh, adherence was 0%, so C1. And then th there was one woman infected uh, after a period uh, uh, with no injections. Uh, and and um, uh, she uh, was discovered to be infected at the time of injection. So, so none of these women were actually getting on-time injections and to date, none developed uh, um, resistance. So no infections with on-time injections and no infections presented to date with acquisition of resistance. So, um, so this is a 23-year-old cisgender woman who's receiving a cab LA for PrEP. Uh, she did not take the oral lead-in and occasionally is seven to 10 days late. However, she's not missed any injections. She does exchange sex for, for shelter and food. Her partners do not wear condoms. And at the time of her most recent injection, you don't have a viral load uh, yet, but her antigen antibody test is positive. An, a viral load was ordered, but, but not done. Um, so what's your next step? Do you begin antiretroviral therapy right away? Begin antiretroviral th therapy, but obtain uh, HIV RNA? Ask the client to return to clinic, redraw a um, antigen antibody test and hold the ART? Ask the client to return to clinic and obtain um, uh, a antigen antibody test and an RNA and hold the ART, or you're not sure. Um, I think D is what Colleen said. She would do every test available, but but what would you do? So go ahead and vote, and we could see those results. I think. Yeah. So so it's interesting. A lot of people, again, interesting, two two um, thirds of people would begin antiretroviral therapy, but um, uh, obtain an RNA. Um, so I'm going to talk through this, but um, I think you're going to be surprised to learn that the likelihood that this is a false positive test is incredibly high, at least in the context of 084, because this is a cisgender woman with on-time injections. The likelihood of her infection is is very low. Um, so let me walk you through that. Oh, I gotta click on the slide. So this was a study presented by Mina Hassinipour uh, at Brisbane in Australia this summer. Uh, so they wanted to object, uh, they wanted to objectively define what the predictive value positive of an uh, of a test was in the context of um, 084. So there were 3,224 participants. Um, and of those, um, 159 had a positive reactive test. Now remember, these women were getting not getting RNA in the in the um, randomized part of the study. Um, and of those 159, 88 um, were were um, false positive reactive tests, and and 74 were true positive. Uh, eight on on uh, cabotegravir. And and um, but most of the true positives obviously were on TDFFTC, and just if you look at this, the antigen antibody test uh, again, this is on cabotegravir. Seven were positive, forty-two um, of the total positive, only seven were confirmed. So that comes back to a predictive value positive of seventeen percent, and then any rapid test or antigen antibody test. 55 were positive, um, 
but only eight were actually confirmed infections. So that the predictive value positive of an antibody test was um, only 50%. If you had two tests that were positive, then the predictive value was much, much higher. Two reactive antibody tests was 100% the predictive value, um, but it was only four out of four because there were so few with cabotegravir. So if it were me um, and this, I would have the woman come back, I would do what Colleen said, get a, you know, an antibody test, uh, of a viral load, get a really good history, uh, but I would probably wait to start oral therapy until the RNA test was back. Um, okay. Um, all right. So this is a similar case. This is the 23-year-old cisgender woman who's receiving uh, CAB-LA for PrEP. She is well-documented uh, case of HIV infection. So this woman has infection. Uh, she received on-time injections, but her viral load returned at 150 and repeat HIV RNA um, uh, was positive. Um, she did not start ART because you didn't have those tests back and she returns to clinic. Um, so what would you do? Repeat RNA uh, uh, and get a genotype and start BFTAF, repeat RNA get a genotype and start dalutegravir twice a day with um, uh, uh, tenofovir and uh, FTC, repeat RNA and genotype, start efavirenz or deravirine-based therapy, repeat and start a boosted PI, repeat and wait for the results, something else or you're not sure. Again, no right answer here. Ah, okay. So um, the majority of people uh, would repeat RNA and start a boosted PI. Um, certainly that that is not wrong. Uh, remember, this person is very likely, well, almost certainly to have only integrase uh, 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 resistance. So uh, if you're starting therapy, a boosted PI would be fine or a Favrins plus Deravirine would be fine. Um, and But the bottom line is we don't really know. Um, what we do know, and this is from work by um, uh, Sue Eshelman and Mark Marzinski, we do know that if you get an RNA really early, um, you may avoid selecting for integrase resistance. And, and this is the bottom line of that uh, uh, diagram. Uh, when they did testing um, uh, based on the protocol, um, six out of six had major um, uh, integrase RAM. My time is up. Um, uh, but if you actually went back to the earliest possible viral load where, where the uh, with a uh, sensitive assay, only one out of five did. So it's possible that if you're catching people real early, they don't have integrase resistance. The problem with a viral load of 150 is you may not be able to get a genotype. Um, and I think in that setting, either boosted PI or um, uh, and an RTI-based uh, therapy uh, might be reasonable, but I'd love to hear what other people think. Here's my summary. So in people suppressed on ART, switching to Cobb-LA, virologic failure is uncommon. It is less than 1% without resistance, without risk factors, or just an elevated BMI alone, so less than 1%. However, if you have failure, um, uh, 
dual resistance is, is possible. And we talked about the risks such as subtype, pre-existing ropivirin resistance, and likely cast failure on an NNRTI. In, um, a, in phase three studies of CAB-LA for PrEP, uh, uh, failure is rare, um, it, quite rare, you know, um, uh, well less than 1%, um, uh, especially in cisgender uh, women. Uh, but integrase resistance is likely um, for infections identified around the time of injection. Uh, those identified later on the tail, much less likely and not documented in the studies. Uh, and antiretroviral options exist, but the optimal strategy there is uncertain. So um, here are some references to, to look at, um, and I am done. Joe, that was terrific. And so we do have uh, some questions for you in the chat. We were scheduled to end, I think, in about five minutes, but we can go a little bit longer than that and cut into the the break by a few minutes because I would like to get these questions answered. So um, I don't need to turn my video on, Tom, but I can't. So, I uh, would like to start by asking you a couple of sort of related questions about your own practice or what you recommend. Should we get uh, proviral DNA for everyone prior to switching to um, long-acting capitagravir and rolpivirine? And uh, as a follow-up, if you see any NNRTI mutations, uh, would you avoid it, even if it's just a K103N? So should yeah, we yeah, great, great questions. Um, so I, I would say absolutely no, um, I wouldn't. Um, I mean, in people who you know when they started therapy and you know they've been suppressed, I don't think there's any um, reason uh, to get um, uh, uh, archive genotype. I, I think you're, you're totally fine there. Um, if they have baseline resistance testing that's helpful, that's where you find out what subtype is. Uh, uh, any standard resistance test that's a genotype will tell you the subtype. A phenotype won't necessarily tell you a subtype. Um, and, and the question about 103N, if that is the only mutation a person has, presumably um, transmitted, um, I, I think uh, cabropivirine is fine. I, I know that people have talked about, you know, there are lots of, for people that want these injections, there's so many benefits to being on this therapy in terms of stigma, in terms of their person's mental health, uh, in terms of how people feel about themselves. So I'm, I'm not minimizing this. Um, I do think that if the history is really foggy and, and, and your clinic can afford it um, or your office, um, I think uh, uh, archived uh, resistance test is reasonable. Just as Arya said earlier, it's reasonable. But if someone has a history of uh, um, NNRTI failure, I would only do it if they say, I just can't take oral therapy any longer. That would be the only reason. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And then a, just a question about what tests show this subtype. Um, some resistance testing, especially if you have sort of a homegrown one that your local lab does may yeah. not report this and so I think it's important to look and make sure that you're getting it and if necessary change the vendor for that absolutely yeah 100% they, they probably know but they're they're not reporting right. absolutely good point. Exactly. yeah exactly and then um 
what about therapeutic drug monitoring after initiating therapy? I'm assuming. Yeah, I, yeah that's a really good question. I, I don't know the answer to it. Um, I, I think my supposition about people who fail on time injections and the Europeans do a lot more therapeutic drug monitoring. They show low levels of, of either ropivirine or TAB. I think it's injection failure. And I really think that that really making sure that people doing the injections are really experienced, you know, really uh, pay attention to that. I think that's critical. I don't know that it would it will really help. Um, I don't think the parameters are, are that good. And I also think that, um, uh, you know, you really have to have a validated test for both ropivirine and cabotegravir. Um, so I'm not, I certainly don't recommend it, but um, uh, uh, so I, I don't, I don't think it'd be that helpful. Yeah, I completely agree. And if you look at the Atlas and Flair data, you know, the, the PK data from that people that failed were with, within the range of Absolutely. everyone else's drug concentrations and maybe a bit towards the lower end. And so if you do a test and then you get something that's a bit low, what yeah. are you going to do except worry about it? But I, can, I completely agree with you, making sure that people doing the injections um, really doing it properly because there yeah. is, you know, a technique that you need to learn. And the, and and with a higher than uh, you know obese BMI, I definitely use the two inch needle. There's no yeah. question in my mind that 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 is critically important. And then what about uh, would you put someone with a high BMI on a monthly schedule? I'm not sure why not, but maybe you could just answer that. Yeah, I I don't I don't think it's necessary personally. I I, I think it's fine to um, go with the you know two doses a month apart and then the two monthly schedule. Yeah. Um, I don't think you're saving anything really. Um, yeah, and then um, I'm just gonna ask you one question and then I think we that that's the, all the ones we have in the Q&A. So when you have a patient in front of you who's doing pretty well on oral therapy and they want to go on these injections, they've read about it, they've heard about it, Lord knows it's like advertised on the television even. And, um, uh, you know, they've been undetectable. They're probably, you know, a suitable candidate. What do you tell them about, you know, what are the considerations they need to think about for doing this? And do you tell them about what might happen if it fails? Because as we both know, rarely, but it can fail in people to do everything exactly right. And then their virus load pops up and there we are. So what do you tell them? Yeah, I I try to be as honest as possible. I, I, I worry about what people hear. Um, I, I tell them that on oral therapy, you're successful on oral therapy, the likelihood that you are gonna fail with resistance is as close to zero as, as we can get. But what will happen on injectable therapy, even if you're on time, um, there's you know around a half a percent, you know, so so one out of a hundred chance over a couple years that that you could um, fail with resistance, and I'm not sure people hear that. I'm just not sure they hear it, to be honest. Uh, um, uh, and um, and I do think there's a lot of benefit to being on on injectable therapy for the right person. And if someone really wants it, I, I think you know again, it's kind of a very patient centered is what we're trying to do. But I don't know. Um, I, I do worry that. Um, uh, uh, 
people aren't hearing when I say there's still a chance of resistance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and if, yeah. You tell them that if there is, then you're going to end up on a boosted PI for the rest of your life. You know, that's a really good question. Um, I haven't said that specifically, but that you you could say that. I mean, there there may eventually be other alternatives. It's possible that they would be one of the lucky ones that doesn't have resistance. But yeah, you could you could say that too. Um, that's a good point. Yeah, I thought it was interesting in our. Um audience response, the number of people that picked a boosted PI is the kind of go-to regimen. And I think it reflects how comfortable we all are with that being more or less yeah. a bulletproof regimen when things go wrong. But yes. yeah. But it has, as you say, there are consequences to yeah. boosted PI, no question. There are. Okay, I think we can adjourn now. Thank you for a terrific presentation. We yeah. now have a break that will end at 1.30 Eastern time. So those of you not in Eastern time can work this out or just know that it's about 15 minutes from now. So please be back on time at half past the hour. Thank you.